Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 17th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the first days of the next two months of your life. That is the National Basketball Association playoffs. Joining me for that conversation are Marcus Thompson, a columnist for the Bay Area News Group, and Shay Serrano of The Ringer. Then Josh Levine and I will, for the first time in this podcast's history, Welcome as a guest, a middle school principal. His name is Nick Elam, and he has a radical idea to drain the swamp that is the final minutes of too many basketball games. Finally, Slate writer Christina Cotarucci will join me in the studio, and we'll talk to Becca Rue, the executive director of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team Players Association, about that team's recent collective bargaining deal and the unprecedented recent successes for women pro athletes in the labor arena. Finally, get ready for a special rather long afterball about the crazy Barkley Marathons, a.k.a. the race that eats its young. The aforementioned Josh Levine, the editorial director of Slate, that's his new title, is away this week, except for the segment where he's not away, which we taped in advance. I feel better knowing that he will be part of this show, and I know you will too. We're looking for a summer intern to join us here in Washington, D.C. You need to be able to come into the studio on Mondays and to help us with research over the weekend. If you are interested, email us at hangup at slate.com. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, the also aforementioned Marcus Thompson and Shea Serrano will stick around to talk about Marcus's new book, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. Join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. It's always a bad idea to draw conclusions after one game of any playoff series. But what the hell, here are a few of mine after the start of the NBA playoffs over the weekend. 
Arenas packed with loyal fans wearing identical T-shirts look like the reviewing stand at a North Korean military parade. Marchin Gortat's screaming head is really scary. And the Giannis Andetokounmpo Gordon Hayward final is going to be awesome. It might not happen this year, but it's going to be awesome. I'm joined now by two people. I'm sure we'll have more substantive NBA observations. Marcus Thompson is a columnist for the Bay Area News Group and the author of the new book, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. What's up, Marcus? What's up? Shay Serrano writes about the NBA for The Ringer. He's got a book coming out in the fall called Basketball and Other Things, a collection of questions asked, answered, illustrated. Welcome, Shay. What up, homie? Marcus, you were at Oracle Arena on Sunday for the Golden State Warriors 121-109 win over the Portland Trailblazers. The story there was not your book subject, but uh, Draymond Green, who was a beast, especially in the fourth quarter. In your postgame column, you described how Green stuffed Damian Lillard at the rim. And then, like Maximus from the movie Gladiator, he let the fervor of the crowd wash over him. You also wrote that Green is the Bill Russell of the millennial generation. He has the spirit of Ben Wallace and Dennis Rodman crammed into Anthony Mason's body. This was good Draymond, right? Blocking shots, making threes, pumping up the crowd, and not yelling at the refs or grabbing anyone's testicles. Man, this was optimal Draymond. This was like Draymond on steroids. He was he was perfect. And we we normally, you know, we see Steph Curry or Clay Thompson like do something crazy and eventually put away the team. But sometimes this year, like maybe about 10 times, Draymond has just said, All right, that's ball game. I'm about to shut this down. And he did it last night. It's 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 one of the, the gyms to watch if you're a basketball fan. Yeah, and this was a game where Curry and, and Kevin Durant combined for 59 points on 38 shots, but the Warriors pulled away in the fourth quarter with both of those dudes on the bench. On the bench. Right? On the bench, yeah. They were on the bench. Uh, they, the Warriors have this, like, defensive unit that, like, it's like this is their all-time hater unit, right? They put in Draymond Green and Clay and David West and Sean Livingston, and it's like, we're just going to shut everything down. We're going to ramp up the defense because before that, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum was completely destroying the Warriors' defense. It was they put on a show, especially C.J. Man, that dude is so smooth. He was he was getting buckets like it was, he was playing a CYO team. But they just said, "All right, let's shut him down now." And and when Draymond Green met them dudes at the rim, like that was it. That was ball game. C.J. McCollum, the pride of Lehigh, he and Lillard combined for seventy five points, but only thirteen in the fourth quarter. Shea, what did you see in that game? I was just cussing a whole lot. Like every time, every time Raymond blocked somebody like that, like it was just a stream of profanities at the TV, which was unfortunate because we were at Easter dinner for the game. Like the whole family was hanging out. And there's like, I'm just cussing in front of babies. And it was, it was a bad look for me, but the game was fantastic. The game was fantastic. You know who else I loved was JaVale McGee, who had a fuck you Shaq game. In the third quarter, he had that crazy offensive rebound off a miss three. He dished to Curry, who had a three. Then he had that fantastic block, which led to a Durant and one during a 10-0 run. But, of course, he also looked totally goofy and awkward doing uh, doing half of that stuff. Yes, he did. You know, I like JaVale because when he runs, he looks like a spider rolling down a hill. Have you seen those clips on like, the Discovery Channel? JaVale is the best. I don't understand how anybody could ever not like JaVale McGee. I'm Everything he does is like, it's like he's fallen, right? 
But yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah, to figure yeah. out if he's gonna if he's gonna like <clears throat> stay upright or if he's gonna crash. And staying yeah. upright is a dunk, and crashing is like throwing the ball <laughs> into the crowd. <laughs> All right, Shay, you are in Houston. You went to the uh, Rockets-Thunder game last night. The Rockets demolished Oklahoma City. Um, Did people, do you think, delude themselves that this was going to be a good series because it was Russell Westbrook against James Harden, and that should sound like a good series? Or do you think this game one was an anomaly? Uh, No, it was not an anomaly. The Rockets are so much better than the Thunder. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's easy to talk yourself into the idea it's going to be a good series just because of how incredible Russell Westbrook is. Like you can honestly say he needs to average 50, 12, and 15 for them to have a chance or whatever. And part of you will go, oh, well, he can, I mean, it's Russell Westbrook, he can do it. But it, yeah, it's not going to be close. It'll be over in top five games. Which is unfortunate. And Oklahoma City just basically shouldn't play any big men, it seems like. I mean, they were, they were just terrible. They were awful. But they, the, the Rockets kept running the same action to get whatever, whoever the big man was. Let's, let's run him through two pick and rolls to get him on Harden at the top of the key and flatten everybody else out. And he would just skate around them like nothing. It was almost embarrassing to watch it happen. But I mean, what are you going to do? It's James Harden, man. You have a hard time guarding James Harden if you're Kawhi Leonard. And you talk about Steven Adams has to guard James Harden at the three point line. It's it's an impossible task. He should just foul him, right? <laughs> I'm like, dude, just give him like you're from New Zealand. Just clobber that dude one time and maybe he won't be so free running around there. I, well, they, I, I have I have a hard time thinking you gotta take Steven Adams out. He's probably their second best player, but I, I don't yeah. have an answer. I'm with you. They they tried that. They tried to, he tried to clobber Patrick Beverly. And then Bev came back and hit two threes in a row. And then he posed. I don't know if they showed it on TV, but I promise at the arena after he hit his second three, he posed for like 45 seconds straight. Like he just wouldn't move. That's the and series. When, when was, Patrick yeah. Beverly Patrick posing Beverly's on you, posing. you're done. You're done, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's, go over to, let's, let's go over to the Cavaliers a little bit. Um, they're playing seven seed Indiana. They managed to win barely 109-108 after blowing a 12-point fourth-quarter lead. After the game, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, they basically seem to be saying, hey, we won, nothing to see here, let's move along. But this is a team that blew a 26-point lead last week against Atlanta, an 11-point fourth-quarter lead against Miami. LeBron's 32. He had a great season, right? Uh, but at Kevin O'Connor, your colleague at the Ringer, Shea, wrote that the Cavs outscored teams by by like eight points per hundred possessions when he's playing or getting outscored by like eight and a half when he's not. He played 38 minutes a game, the most in the league. He's probably going to have to play more in the playoffs. Can he do this? Can he get them to another uh, a seven straight finals? Of course he can. He's LeBron James. How dare you? <laughs> how, dare, how dare you say can he? Right? The question LeBron. is disrespectful. <laughs> yeah. you. It's my job you just to throw it out there. The only way that LeBron James not being in the NBA Finals is if he just decides to retire. That's it. That's the only way he's not going to the chip. There's nothing you can do about it. I, mean, I can't believe you said that. I almost <laughs> want to hang up the phone right now. I mean, I can't believe you falling for the banana in the tailpipe. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's no way. Like, there, there is nothing to see here. That's LeBron James. Did you learn nothing from last year? Oh, I learned a lot from last year. <laughs> yeah, I think you're stuck, man. He's it, it, there's no 
Who's going to stop him? Who's going to stop LeBron? Like, Giannis. Okay, sure. they, Giannis. I got my Giannis thing going today. So. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that series. That's going to be great. Well, I hope uh, that is a series. What has to happen for that to be a series? The Bucks just have to win. That's it. Yeah. So and that's then they play. Yeah, that's, that's, it's a semifinal, win. right? They play in the they play in the second round, right? But I mean, we're like, oh, they only won by one point. I'm sure he would be perfectly fine winning only by one point every time LeBron would. Like they just that's what they do. They just win, right? They you know what I'm saying? It was refreshing to see like Paul George look elite again. There there oh, was a time oh, Shay, that I thought I thought Paul George would be. A rival, so to speak, to LeBron. <laughs> I mean, it didn't really work out that way, but right, it was it was good. For, it was like okay, that I remember this about PG, and yeah, you know, for a second you might think could could he do it, but again, it's LeBron. Yeah, he, he uh, it felt it, you know what it felt like that for me when they played when it was Pacers Heat and he dunked on Chris Anderson. You yeah, that? yeah. Like, oh, like oh, he's not fucking around this year, and it felt really like he's coming for LeBron's neck. And then you know had the injury, and then last year he wasn't he wasn't himself. But this year he looks like playoff Paul George again. And he hit that big three. They were they were. He felt like the game was moving the opposite direction, and he came down and hit like a twenty seven footer. And you're like, oh, it's it, here we are, here we are again. Oh, and he was pissed after the game, right? I mean, he 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 questioned why he didn't get the last shot, as he should have. As he, I mean, I saw the the graphic about it. he's like oh for fifteen and. Game or something like that, but I don't care. Give the ball to Paul George. He came running back as soon as he passed it. He's you know screaming, "Give me the ball back!" But that was disappointing. He needs the to thing, Lance needs to shoot it. One of those two. The thing about that series has me wonder. Same thing with Portland. I always figured like Dame or McCollum could drop fifty right and take a game, or Paul George. I was mm-hmm. hoping he could take a game. I wonder if both of them like blew their wad. Like was that the one game? That they yeah. were supposed to take, and now it's a wrap, or does, or is that like proof that they still can take a game? I'm not sure yeah, about either one. It feels like it was a wasted shot. Like I, you can't get 41 from uh, CJ and lose that game. It just right. can't happen. Um, and the same thing with Paul. Like he, need, they needed to get that one. Let's talk about Giannis a little bit. He had 28, 13 for 18. The Bucks destroyed the Raptors. Um, I was reading a piece by Neil Payne on 538, and he sort of established Giannis's unicorn status. Nine advanced metric categories tracked by base basketball reference. Giannis was in the top half in eight of them, the top quarter in six. Do you guys buy the idea that internet-era players like Giannis are sort of shattering this old idea about what an NBA superstar has to be, that you don't need to play in a big market, you don't need a big Nike deal in order to be a sort of transcendent player on and off the court? Um, I disagree with that. Only because... It's easy for, like, the three of us who are in, like, the NBA nerd circle, of course, we're talking about Giannis, and of course, he's incredible. But when we were at, when I was at that Easter dinner earlier, and we were watching that game, um, oh, no, this was the day before, we were at a crawfish boil, and, all like, literally every other person there was like, who, who's the guy who keeps dunking on everybody? Like, they just didn't know who he was. We're talking about one of the most exciting players in the league. But they just don't show Milwaukee games in Houston. Nobody, nobody knew him. So I, I wish it weren't the case, but I think we're still stuck in that era. I mean, you can't even say his name, like <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I don't, 
Look, the best thing for Giannis is probably going to be to get traded to a super team. <laughs> like, if if that happens, then he'll probably be a star. Uh, maybe he go teams with LeBron and forms the greatest defense ever. But I don't. First off, I don't think no matter what his name was or his game was, he's in Milwaukee. Like, there's a there's a ceiling there. <laughs> like, even Ray Allen had to go to Boston. Uh, it's cold blooded too because that dude is next, man. Yeah. Well, you know, we weren't exactly talking about Golden State as a major basketball market. I mean, that's five still a bay, ago. though, right? Like, yeah. Like, they're, they're, the ceiling was higher there. Like, you saw that in 07, and we believe it was like, man, if they ever, that was the common thing. If they ever get a winning team here, you know, in, 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 in Milwaukee, they've had winning teams, and yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. Right. You got, I think, I think you, your city has to have, like, at least three famous rappers for you to be legit. That's why San Antonio never busted out like they did. Everybody understands it. And, oh, yeah, San Antonio is great, but that ain't the, the, the team. I think that's a good metric, yeah. I think I, think yeah, I mean, does Sprewell count as one? Sprewell's one, to, right? He, no, he does not count as one. You can't. Oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what, what was uh, interesting is during that game, there was a moment where, where Giannis and Thon were both kind of going nuts during the game. And it felt like, yo, Milwaukee might make the jump. And and that's super exciting to think about. I hope he doesn't leave. Marcus is playing around saying go sign with LeBron. I really hope he stays there and they do something incredible, which and you know, force force the league's hand. Let's let's make everybody know who this guy is. But I don't know, man. I think you need the three rappers. That's the rule. And they don't have them yet. All right, we didn't get to the Knicks and a lot of other things, but uh, let us call it a segment there. Marcus Thompson is a columnist for the Bay Area News Group. He's the author of the new book, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. Shea Serrano writes for The Ringer. His book, Basketball and Other Things, a collection of questions asked, answered, illustrated, will be published in October. You can pre-order it now. You can order Marcus's book now. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Yeah, no sweat, dude. Appreciate it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. There's nothing quite like the end of a somewhat close NBA game, and I don't mean that in a good way. Thanks to timeouts, intentional fouls, free throws, and replay reviews, the last ticks of a game in which a team is losing by a handful of points not only can take an eternity, the final 20 seconds of a Thunder Magic game a few weeks ago lasted 10 minutes, but they can drain every ounce of excitement from an arena and usually to no end. Of more than 400 nationally televised NBA games in the last three seasons, with at least one intentional crunch time foul by the trailing team, the hack, stop the clock, hope for missed free throws strategy worked exactly once. Yeah, sure, we can all think of other instances when it's happened, but in this pretty large sample of prominent NBA games, the team that employed basketball's most common comeback tactic came back to win once. 
An NBA fan named Nick Elam was sick of watching boring NBA endgames and decided to craft his own solution to the problem. Elam is a 34-year-old principal at Esther Dennis Middle School in Dayton, Ohio, and he joins us now. Welcome to Hang Up and Listen. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for doing it, Nick. Uh, Every NBA fan thinks they have a solution to this problem, and the results, almost without exception, involve tinkering with the causes of drawn-out endgames. So you get calls to either increase the penalty for intentional fouling and or to shorten timeouts or reduce the number of timeouts. You had a different idea. In a piece on ESPN this month, Zach Lowe summed it up thusly, eliminate the game clock from crunch time. Explain what you want to do. Sure. So the, my concept is basically just like you said, that basketball would use a hybrid duration format where it's part timed and part untimed. Most of each game would be played with a game clock. But before you get to the final portion of the game, uh, you would eliminate the game clock and play to a certain point total. And it's really as simple as that. Now, one, now you have to figure out all the, the micro details that go along with it. Uh, But that's the basic concept. And what's really cool about it is is that basketball is the only sport that can have the best of both worlds like that because of the scoring rate in basketball. Um, If you look at any other time sport like football, ice hockey, soccer, field hockey, water polo, lacrosse, rugby, handball, down the line, uh, the scoring is much more sporadic and they can't rely on scoring uh, to determine the duration of the game. This is something that only basketball can take advantage of. All right, so if the score is 100 to 97 with three minutes to go, the Elam ending would stipulate that um, you add seven points to the total of the team that's in the lead. So you get 107, and it's the first team to 107 that wins the game, and there's no game clock. So the team that has 100 has to score seven points. The team that has 97 would need to score 10 points. And thus, the incentive of the losing team is we need to stop the leading team from scoring. We don't want to foul them. We don't want them to make a two or a three. Is that all correct? That, that's right. And the, the idea is that you get to see real basketball all the way through the end of the game. Um, I think you'll see uh, you'll see some uh, some additional comebacks that you don't see now. A uh, healthy amount, not too much that it becomes a gimmick. You'll see a fair number of, of more comebacks. Uh, but really what I like about it is I think the, the ending of games is going to be more satisfying whether there's a comeback or not. If a team holds on to its lead, they get to do it using the same uh, style of play that got them that lead. If the team does make the comeback, uh, they get to do it playing real basketball. The bottom line here is that you're saying this is not about the outcome of deliberate fouling. It's the deliberate fouling itself. It's the cause of the, 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 the drawn out end game, but it's also the aesthetic problem with deliberate fouling, um, that it really just brings the game to a crawl. How did you come up with the, this alternative way of, of resolving basketball games? Well, you're right. It all started really in, you know, I've watched basketball since I was five years old and I love basketball. And if basketball doesn't change, I'm going to continue watching basketball. But it was uh, 2004. I was a senior at the University of Dayton and my housemates and I, we were all watching games. We're all big sports fans. We'd seen games just like this hundreds of times, thousands of times before. Uh, But, you know, we kind of looked around at each other and, you know, it's like, this is really weird the way that basketball just deteriorates at the end of games. And it was the deliberate fouling that was most uh, troubling of all, at least to me, just that 
if you've got a team that's blatantly violating the rules, then there's some sort of a flaw there. So then you have to think, well, what is, why is this happening? Well, it's because the their opponent is just trying to exhaust time. They're just trying to stall the game away. All of these things are attributable to the influence of the game clock. And so you start to think, well, maybe if you just got rid of the game clock, then, you know, those problems would go away. But the problem is if you get rid of the game clock entirely and just play you know, first to 75 or first to 100, whatever you do, then it's not very TV friendly. You're going to have games, some games that are done in an hour and a half. You're going to have some games that are over three hours long. They just won't work. So uh, it took some time before I thought of it and then much more time to really fine tune it. But uh, I think if you play most of each game with a clock, you get to reap the benefit of reigning in the length of game times but if you get rid of it at the right time and play the final portion of the game without the game clock, then there's not going to be any reason to try to manipulate the clock. So the basketball tournament, which is a winner-takes-all contest that's been um, around for a couple of years now, and you get you know college players, a lot of alumni teams, Syracuse has done well um, in the a past few years. A lot of ex- years. Ex- ex-NBA players, too. So they have embraced your idea. They're going to be trying it out at some games in June, and you can understand why they would do so. They're kind of a disruptor. They're um, you know not an established league like the NBA. Um, can you tell us about your experience as a dude in Dayton trying to get people who run basketball leagues to take you seriously, or if not you, then at least to take your idea seriously, including the NBA. Sure. So yeah, sure. So well, first of all, you say that there's uh, the TBT has a reason to to do this. I I see that they also have reasons not to do this. I think they're it's a fast growing event. They're they've got a pretty good thing going, and so uh, it's pretty bold of them to embrace this idea. But I think they're going to be glad that they did, and I, I really appreciate their support. But along the way. Um, you know, over this period, and, and it was it was in 2007 when I first thought of this hybrid format, uh, part timed and part untimed. But along the way, um, you know, I've sent out you know proposals and things like this to, to so many people within the basketball community, NBA uh, executives, and people in the analytics community, college coaches, conference commissioners, WNBA owners. Um, media members, agents, sports agents, because I think uh, this is, we're going to have so many game-ending shots that this is gonna, they're going to be able to push their players' brand with this. I thought sports agents would be all over how many, it. How many people uh, <laughs> would you estimate you sent your idea out to, and how many responses did you get? Um, and then also uh, semi-pro leagues, international leagues, rec leagues. So I, you know, <laughs> those were the ones who I thought, yes, uh, th- those would be the ones who would want to embrace an idea like this to draw some attention to their league. But, oh, it's, I mean, hundreds and hundreds. And I've, I've received uh, what percentage do I get a response? Oh, fewer. I mean, it's, it's less. It's. it's Probably around 5%. That's just an off-the-top-of-the-head guess. I don't know for sure. Zach Lowe's story on ESPN notes that Mark Cuban did write you back, though. Did you hear from any NBA people? Was that it? Uh, I did, and I and one recent response I got was from one team that I, I don't think they quite understood the proposal. They thought that I was proposing that their individual team implement this when 
it'll, no, it, don't, it doesn't work that way. It would have to be a league-wide <laughs> rule change. But, but no, I don't, I don't mean to come off that way because the people who have responded, they didn't owe me that response, and I'm glad that they did. And they, they could have told me to get lost, but they didn't do that. They gave me a thoughtful response, and a lot of them, it was actually very positive and thoughtful feedback, uh, but they were quick to remind me that these kinds of changes don't happen often, and they certainly don't happen quickly. Um, so, I mean, all along the way, I've kind of developed a pretty good sense of humor about the whole thing. But, um, you know, I just made another round of contacts last summer. And uh, this was, you know, looking at different semi-pro leagues and events and international leagues. And TBT was intrigued. And then it, intrigue turned into it's going to turn into implementation in June. You're the principal of a middle school. Have you been able to implement this for the middle school leagues? <laughs> no, that's what's funny. I mean, I've, I've I've contacted rec leagues in the you know in the Ohio in Ohio in the in the area, and uh, I, I don't even think I've gotten any responses from any rec leagues or anything like that. Not even you know you know youth intramural leagues don't even want to touch it. But uh, I think if you I mean if you really give it a shot, then it's not such a crazy idea. And again, what's cool is that basketball is the only sport that can do this. I think it's a genius idea, and you, um, I think, are onto something. And basketball is my favorite sport, and it's also the sport, I think, with the worst end game. Like, I'm not a big hockey fan, but I will watch the end of a hockey game when a team is down by one goal just because the way that the rules work in hockey and the development of pulling the goalie is just so great it makes the game more fun faster paced but it's still hockey and i think there's something similar in your approach where it would be you know a slightly different approach and slightly different strategy than is in the game now but it would still be basketball right and that's that's the thing i i love basketball i i eat it up and so you don't want uh, to destroy basketball <laughs> that's right and i know it sounds like i'm i'm clock shaming basketball but clock shaming um, i like that uh, you know, I think there, there, we see a lot of great finishes, and I think we can keep and enhance all of the good things that we see in end of the end of games, and we can eliminate or alleviate a lot of the bad things that we see. We, you know, we do see some very frenzied finishes and, and game-ending shots that are made and uh, late comebacks, and but uh, and overtime. A lot of that happens when the circumstances align just right that nobody has to foul and nobody is compelled to stall. Um, I think if you got rid of the clock altogether, you would see those great finishes much more often. And you you pick any number, that number would represent a, a margin, of a scoring margin. You pick just about any number. I think if you take a look at that number now and the excitement of a finish with that scoring margin and compare it to the same scoring margin without a clock, I think it would be a more exciting finish. Uh, with Adam Silver as commissioner of the NBA, I think this is a perfect time for, for you and for this idea. Silver has demonstrated a willingness to look at making fundamental changes to the game, uh, tinkering with the draft structure, maybe shortening the regular season to improve player health. Even if the NBA doesn't get there quickly, they're at least willing to look at stuff. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be looking for in the Elam ending when TBT puts it on? And how do you think it'll play out. I mean, are you anticipating like, well, maybe 10 points would be better. Maybe we should start it at four minutes instead of three minutes uh, from the end of the, of the game. What kinds of things are you going to be looking for when these guys take the court? 
That's a great question. By the way, Elam ending, I love the name Elam ending in part because it, I didn't name it that. Um, I, I've always called it the hybrid duration format and uh, that's TBT not founders. A really good, that's, that's not, not really a good, a good name. name. No. I know, exactly. So Bad. TBT came up with a better name and a name where they wanted to attach my name to it. And so that's that's very flattering. I, pr- I really appreciate that. But to answer your question, um, at the Jamboree this June, I'm going to be uh, you know, I'm going to be looking to see, okay, how are teams going to try to circumvent this now? Because, hey, they're playing to win, and they they should try if they think there's a way around it. But I think it's pretty sound. Um, there's a couple of very, very specific micro scenarios where teams would try to uh, – where they would be advised to try to play an unnatural style of play. But for the most part, I think it's pretty sound. But if – if it just seems like it's very uh, prevalent where they're trying some sort of unnatural style of play, then sure, that's when the fine tuning comes in and some of the crowdsourcing, which I think can be fun, where you know, all along this is, I've, I've just tried to come up with the best idea on paper and now we're not going to have to guess anymore. We're going to see it in action. And yeah, maybe if, um, if teams start to change their style of play before that four minute mark or three minute mark, okay, well maybe we need to extend the, untimed portion of the game that would be one example but um uh, you know so that those are the kind of the things i've got lots of contingency plans uh but i think i think it's going to work pretty well and then if 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 there's any kind of holes that we see in it then we can fine-tune it and make it even better so i don't think this is a micro scenario and i'm sure this is one you've thought about um let's say the score is capped at 100 it's 99 to 97, there is going to be a fouling incentive there, a perverse incentive, right? Because if the team that's, um, needs a three to get to a hundred has the ball, the team that's in the lead is going to want to foul them. So they can't shoot a three pointer. The, the reason you're exactly right. And the reason I think that that is more forgivable, I guess, than what we see now is that when you consider the percentage of games where you would uh, find that would be way, way smaller than what we see deliberate fouling now. That's one reason. Another reason is that it's not really a repeatable strategy like you see in the deliberate fouling. It's basically use it once and that's it. Another thing is that in the games where you do see that scenario, you're you're basically guaranteed a thrilling finish. Once you get past that foul then and the free throws, you're going to see a thrilling finish. So it's the calm before an inevitable storm. Right. It's 99-99. Both teams have to play defense and both teams have to try to score. There is no way out. Yeah, right. I, I, and there's I, uh, and there's even an equivalent sort of an equivalent uh, scenario now where you have uh, teams who are leading by three in the closing seconds who commit a foul to prevent a game tying or game, you know, yeah, game tying three. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's the one that's a flaw that, uh, you know, it's kind of bugged me all these years. It's an imperfection of it, but uh, even if it's not a perfect solution, I do think it's a better alternative than what we see currently. Yeah, I agree. And I do think it's a better alternative. I think the interesting challenge you have here is salesmanship, though. And I think it is difficult to sell um, anything that's new and different from what's been entrenched in the sport for a long time. And if there is a weirdness like this where you have an incentive for a team that's winning to foul at the end of like the uh, at the end of a game where um, – it would be the kind of most exciting scenario 
that you'd want to see. I think that just makes your sales job a little harder. Sure. I understand that. Uh, I think overall what's, you know, talking about people who are lifelong basketball fans or even consider themselves kind of old school uh, purists. I think what's really cool about this idea is that it's similar to the way we all learn to play basketball on the playground, playing to a certain point total. It's kind of got a throwback, stripped down nature to it. Um, I, I, I think it's less gimmicky than what we see now. I think it's kind of an ungimmick. One last thing that I would say that's um, in favor of your approach is that if a team is up by like 30 with three minutes to go, there's no way that they could ever come back in today's NBA or in any basketball game. But now, uh, you know, with the Elam ending, there would be a possibility, even if it was a slim one, that a team could just make an insane comeback and that would just become legendary yeah. um, in the sport. Like not a team even 30. From- I mean, say 15. I mean, those games become relevant to the end. Right. And so and other things that you might see in those in those games where, OK, it's still this is a real long shot in a 30 point game that anybody's going to come back. I, I understand that. But you might have some interesting scenario where, hey, maybe this is the last um, game of someone's career. And, and this is like the final stand to try to make their career last, you know, just a few more possessions and everybody's kind of getting into it or just you know, whatever it is. Or maybe the team's up by three and it's the last game, game of their career and um, or they're up by 30 and it's the last game and you can at least give them the, the ball to make that final shot. Or if it's uh, a college game and they're up by 30, you can put in your uh, non-scholarship players and, and hope one of them can hit the game clinching shot the people would lose their minds for that. So I think even, and that's what I mentioned before, you pick just any scoring margin, maybe 30 is the number. You compare what a 30-point game looks like now, I think a 30-point game would be cooler and have uh, you know just some moment, some clinching moment to it uh, under the hybrid format. Every game would have a walk-off shot, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's the thing is that, uh, you know, if it's you, you know, going in, you know, going in that you're going to have a Chris Jenkins type moment in the NCAA tournament, you know, that you're going to have uh, that, that the NBA finals are going to end with a with a walk off shot. I mean, it, it's that we are going to remember those kinds of shots forever, whether the game and it doesn't have to come in a, a one or two point game it can come in a 10 point game and we'll still remember hey remember that shot that lebron james hit to win the finals you know things like that so um that's where i think that's one of the residual benefits is kind of cool about this nick elam is a middle school principal a basketball fan and the creator of the elam ending which he did not name it'll be tested during the basketball tournament in june nick thank you so much for joining us thank you With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Earlier this month, the U.S. women's national soccer team crushed Russia in two friendlies by a combined score of 9-1. to 
Russia isn't exactly a soccer powerhouse. It's uh, 25th in the world, just a few spots ahead of Thailand. But after getting thumped in a tournament on home soil last month, the U.S. women may have been playing more happily and less distractedly thanks to a new five-year labor contract with their employers, the U.S. Soccer Federation. The deal was reached after months of contentious negotiation, threatened walkouts, and a federal wage discrimination complaint, and years of acrimony over the pay, benefits, and playing conditions for the one U.S. national soccer team that can call itself a world champion. Slate's Christina Cotarucci is in Washington with me now. Hey, Christina. Hi. And joining us from San Francisco is Becca Rue, the interim executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. Thanks for being with us, Becca. Hi, thanks for having me. The Players Association had three men running the negotiations before you were hired, including one of the most prominent labor union lawyers in sports history, Jeffrey Kessler. Now, I suspect that gender might have played a role here. Why do you think you were able to help get this deal done when these other uh, representatives were not? I think I think being a woman didn't hurt, but I wouldn't say my gender was the only factor. I think that oversimplifies the issue. I think first the team just had to surround themselves with people who believe them, believe in them and would fight for them. And so with their Bredhoff and Kaiser lawyers, uh, Mady Gilson and Adam Bellotti, both are longtime labor lawyers, and they had seen everything. And while Adam's a man, he's in the business of taking on the man. And for me, I can identify with the challenges that the women were facing. And regardless of my gender, I think I have a unique set of experiences and skill sets that enabled me to step in and do this job. Um, from a, If you want to look at it from a gender perspective, I guess you could perhaps say that some of my leadership traits are traditionally viewed as more feminine qualities, including just being uh, more perceptive, nurturing, vulnerable. And I think that is what led me to have a philosophy that I first and foremost wanted to empower the players to be the decision makers. And that was, I think, truly the key to getting this deal done, that the players were empowered and they took the ball and ran with it. Yeah, I think uh, it was definitely impressive to see what a strong role the players played in in making the negotiations happen. And I was interested in um, something you told the New York Times, which is that uh, you and the players were trying to change the methodology of how their work was valued. Um, and I'd love to hear more about what you meant by that, um, what the previous methodology was that, that you thought the U.S. soccer was using to establish their value um, and what was flawed about it and what changed about it in the, the new agreement that y'all came to. Yeah, I think this is where my background as a consultant even comes in, just looking at different benchmarks of what are ways that you can value something, anything. And you can look at historical rates of what the women were getting paid and saying what they're, use that as the benchmark and what the raise was. And I think that's a way that U.S. soccer likes to look at it versus a line item by line item comparison against the men or looking at other uh women's teams that are comparable, but it's really difficult to find those exact parallel examples. And so we looked at uh, mostly what other American sports leagues do in terms of valuing the teams or the, the league versus the players. And first wanted to just attribute a value to what is the amount of revenue that the women are generating. And so how big is that pie? And then how do you split the pie across the parties? And then how do you, as you 
divide up the pie, what do you then, how do you spread it across the different compensation components to incentivize the right behaviors? A lot of the conversation about this in the media was about the idea of equal pay and comparing what these women, highly successful, the most successful soccer team we've ever had, um, were getting or not getting vis-a-vis the men's national team, not so successful, but in a very different realm. I mean, it's almost comparing, I mean, this is sort of a silly comparison given the world that these two teams have to play in, different schedules, different levels of compensation by far in their professional clubs. Um, so valuing what they do always struck me as a very difficult thing to do. It wasn't quite so simplistic as we might want to see it as they should be paid the exact same amount. Yeah, I think that's generally right. And where we started to say um, more and more that equitable compensation is and fair compensation is what was being sought versus a line item by line item equal comparison. That said, there's still legal protections in this country, thankfully, that um, allow for people even in intrinsically different environments where you can seek to do some sort of comparison and make sure that it it is hitting that equal or equitable mark. So what made it uh, equitable in your opinion? I know um, it was definitely visible from the outside, this sort of shift in messaging from equal pay to equitable pay. How did that manifest on the inside? I think it was first just stepping back and going, what do we as a women's program need and without trying to look at any other comparisons what what do we generate in terms of revenue and so using different proxies for that I mean it's not currently it's not all transparent and so when you look at the sum deal or the television deal um, U.S. soccer does not disaggregate those revenue streams but we think it's equitable in terms of we've set ourselves up for the future to make it more and more transparent. And so while we uh, maybe can't say exactly what the revenue that's generated that can be attributed to the women today, we are hopeful that as going forward, we will be able to say that and more and more closely align the compensation to be um, commensurate with the value and the revenue that they're generating. And clearly this is, I think we should be clear, there are substantial pay increases here, and that is hugely important for these women. Um, match bonuses are much higher. You negotiated a much higher base pay. Um, it sounds like some of the players will make it up to as much as $300,000 a year, which does bring them certainly closer to where they should be, given the, you know, the, the value that they generate both as an entity in the media, in terms of uh, fan attention, in terms of stadiums that they fill. Um, and at the same time that you reached this agreement, the U.S. women's ice hockey team reached its own new deal. And they had some contentious negotiations to right on the uh, right before their their world championship. Um, the hockey players drew an enormous amount of attention and they got what I thought was unprecedented support from men's uh, professional sports players associations. Did you feel being part of this that this is some sort of change moment in terms of the ability of professional women athletes to draw this kind of attention and support? Absolutely. I I think it's a special moment in time and just serendipitous that both of these deals were done within a week of each other. Uh, John Langle, who was the founding uh, and 
acting executive director of this U.S. Women's National Team PA, helping the U.S. hockey women's team get the deal that they got. I mean, what they did was courageous. And I do think it speaks to a broader movement that female athletes are playing more and more and always have been really, but playing a role today in terms of fair, equitable compensation, equal pay. And I, th- I think it's just their legacy for today's athletes building on kind of legends of the past, whether it's Babe Diedrichsen or Catherine Switzer, or, um, Julie Foudy, Mia Hamm. It's, it's a definitely a, a cool moment and a significant one in history. All of this makes me feel, Becca, that this current team is more grounded in the growth of the sport and its responsibility to its fans, something that I have long felt has been central to women's soccer and reflective of women's sports more generally. I really like what these women accomplished and the way they went about accomplishing it. And as a fan and as the father of a girl, I feel energized by this group. Um, previous teams have sort of seemed to want to distance themselves from the 1999 champions, the Mia, Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy's. This group now seems to be more grounded in, in sort of the, the history of the game. Did you feel that with them and what their goals were here? I can't speak to what previous iterations were. I just wasn't a part of it. Right. But I, I do think that this group had in, made intentional efforts to speak to their alumni and, and get their perspective. I mean, standing on the shoulders of giants that are Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Christine Lilly and Brandy Chastain. I, um, it was very much part of this process to get their perspective and uh, to, to recognize that they had paved the way and that this was their, their chance and their opportunity to create their own legacy. And I think the character of the players representatives and Becky Sauerbrunn and Kristen press and Megan Klingerberg, they are just incredible individuals and the amount of time and effort that they put into this is unbelievable. And, and then that extends also to the remaining CBA committee members and Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino and, Kelly O'Hara and Sam Mewis. Um, so I think all of them, I'll let them speak to their bonding experience, but from as me as kind of a, an outsider of sorts, I was blown away by, by them as individuals and their character. It also seems to me like the very public framing of these negotiations in terms of greater struggles for equal pay have brought in a lot of people who aren't necessarily interested in sports. I know I have a lot of friends who don't follow the, you know, women's national team, like might follow Megan Rapinoe on Instagram or something, but don't watch sports, but who think like, oh, yeah, you know, it's so great that these women are out in public um, speaking to equal pay that um, they're sort of getting maybe some new fans on board because of the fact that they've put themselves out there in a, in a politicized kind of way. Um, how do you think that'll reflect in the future of the team? We sure hope that's the case. I, I, I agree with you that the women, these women are strong voices in the public. And if that helps convert some otherwise not sports, sports fans into watching and cheering on, their efforts on the field, that's wonderful. Um, I think the best way to support female athletes is actually to show up and support them and attend games and watch their games on television. And thankfully you can actually do that more and more 
these days with the lifetime partnership that the NWSL has and the amount of games that are being broadcast now on Fox and ESPN for their national team play. Um, so I, we are thankful for the global support of fans and we hope that um, going forward there's a more and more broad and diverse coalition of fans that not only are showing up to support on the field efforts but are a group that and chorus together that can help move forward some of these off the field social impact issues. You know, I've covered sports labor for 20 years. Um, and what really impressed me here is the level of engagement and the desire for agency that the athletes, the women on this team, um, took on for themselves. I mean, the, the details in Andrew Doss's piece in the New York Times about how involved they were down to editing legal documents was kind of remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think people fully can grasp that it is astounding how much time and effort and engagement there was and, and truly ownership. I think part of that was the transformational change that they undertook for their own organization. I think it's one thing to say we want to change and they were right for it, but it's another thing to have the persistence and patience and perseverance to stay the course and endure that change. And the reason that they could do that and that were successful is because of their own engagement and ownership. And well, well, give, us some, that, give us some details about that engagement. What did they do? I think just at a general level, it looks like navigating multiple geographies and time zones to hold conference calls. They filled out surveys. They wrote proposals and provided feedback on what has amounted to over 300 pages of Google Docs. And on a kind of specific example, when we were in Portland, for instance, there was uh, negotiation sessions for 11 days straight in the afternoon. And it was in the afternoon so that the players like Becky Sauerbrunn and Kristen Press and Megan Klingenberg and Megan Rapino could train in the morning. Um, so at the end of each day, when we were wrapping up negotiations, we would work with those players to get their perspectives. And then Adam, Mady, and I would put together proposals and then we'd send them out for review over the night. And I would get on the phone and talk with Alex Morgan and get her thoughts. And then Sam Mewis and Kelly O'Hara and get their thoughts. And basically every single thing that went on the table was something that the players had reviewed and approved and detailed looking at financial analysis to understand the impact that any given proposal would have, as well as changing single words within their contract language. They were lawyers, consultants, and entrepreneurs in training. That is so impressive. I mean, I can't imagine even sitting through one hour of a contract negotiation or listening to somebody read aloud one legal document. And talk about equal pay. I mean, you're not getting extra pay for all these extra hours you're spending editing a PowerPoint. No, and they and they just took it in stride and did it with a sense of humor. They are truly the authors and architects of this collective bargaining agreement, and they have every right to feel very proud. And uh, there was a lot of good banter throughout it. So I'm quite humbled and thankful to have been even a small part of it. It's always struck me, Becca, that the women weren't appreciated by the powers that be in U.S. soccer, and for whatever reasons. Um, it certainly was reflected in the contracts. It was reflected in the venues that they played in, the quality of the turf, the size of the stadiums. And when I say the size of the stadiums, I mean, sometimes they were just too big. They should be playing in these, the, the, the many lovely 20,000 seat soccer arenas that we have in America now. Um, was there a hurdle to get over with U.S. soccer? And 
how you know what kinds of things did you have to to show them to demonstrate the power of the U.S. national team? I think generally there's kind of a systemic and institutional bias within women's sports that you can see running all the way up to FIFA and then down to U.S. soccer in some way. U.S. soccer does deserve credit for being leaders in their their realm in terms of comparing to other federations, but they still have a great opportunity to actually recognize and believe in the value of the women. And I think that's just a mindset shift and it requires more and more work. And so I think as we went through these negotiations, we just more and more saw that there's just a fundamental disagreement and how they value and we value the team. And even when you put objective stats, like comparing social media statistics uh, where the women's team and average is six times more popular than the men, uh, they still, it takes some changing of, of perspective to believe in that value. And so one of the great things coming out of the CBA negotiation that I think will really empower this group going forward is they have a more meaningful opportunity to directly create revenue from themselves for themselves using their group likeness rights. And so we, and that was taken really from studying other players associations and seeing that they can maintain a level of independence by really driving their own marketing value. And so if, if another entity didn't see the value that we see in ourselves, then we'll take it back and go and try to work with partners that will also see that value. Becca Rue is the interim executive director of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team Players Association. Becca, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, the afterball. The Barkley Marathons is a 100-plus mile race through the Tennessee mountains. You may have heard of it. It was the subject of a terrific documentary a couple years ago called The Race That Eats Its Young, and it gets the occasional feature treatment. Runners have 60 hours to complete five course loops through unforgiving terrain with a total elevation gain of about 60,000 feet. The race has been run for three decades, but it's been completed only 18 times by 15 men, most recently an ultra runner named John Kelly a few weeks ago. The Barkley is the whim of a bald, paunchy former marathoner in his 60s named Gary Cantrell. His race is as unusual as it is cruel. From hundreds of applications, Cantrell handpicks 40 entrants a year. The entry fee is $1.60 and a license plate from the runner's state or country. The participants show up at Frozen Head State Park on April Fool's weekend. There's no official start time, just a 12-hour window between midnight and noon. 
Cantrell blows a conch shell to give the runners an hour's warning and lights a cigarette to send them on their way. The runners rely on a set of lengthy cryptic directions, a map, a compass, and each other. To prove they've completed the loops, they have to rip out pages matching their bib numbers from books placed at checkpoints. Cantrell picks books with cheeky titles, Death by Misadventure, The Most Dangerous Game, What Did I Do Wrong, Confessions of a Virgin Sacrifice. Cantrell goes by Lazarus Lake, or Laz. Writers portray him as a folksy mountain shaman slash whimsical running guru. In an essay in The Believer in 2011, Leslie Jameson wrote, He's managed to garner respect as a man of principle, a man so committed to the notion of pain that he's willing to rally men in its pursuit. And there is something authentic and quirky and inspiring about the Barclay. It's a middle finger to big running and the corporate takeover of modern participation sports. And it's a massive test of physical endurance, self-discovery, and self-reliance. Finishing is an impossible goal for most Barkley runners. The real goal is pushing personal and human boundaries. In a blog post after falling just short in 2016, a professional endurance athlete from Canada named Gary Robbins called Cantrell the wizard and wrote, During the race, I feel like I unlocked a door in my mind that led to a room I'd never entered before, and in that room existed a near-perfect version of myself, devoid of ego, free of judgment, removed from life's minutiae, steadfast in purpose, distracted by nothing, heart wide open with a complete inability to overreact to any obstacle that stood in my way. Cantrell plays the wizard well, homespun, sardonic, mysterious, a little crazy. A profile by Sarah Estes in The Bitter Southerner last year helped to demystify him. He's also an accountant who coached Little League for years. Estes caught glimpses of the man behind the character, the former runner displaying empathy toward or maybe guilt over luring fellow runners to the edge of their existence. But after watching the end of this year's race, I'd say there's room for a lot more empathy and maybe some safeguards too. The central figures are the two runners I mentioned earlier, John Kelly and Gary Robbins. 30 minutes before the 60-hour cutoff, Kelly staggers to the finish line, one of those yellow gates on backcountry trails or fire roads. The few dozen spectators, other runners, their families, race organizers, applaud. Cantrell makes Kelly hit a big red novelty store buzzer that announces, that was easy. Then Cantrell says, one more thing. He wants Kelly to hand over his pages, the proof that he hit all his checkpoints. Kelly, who has run, walked, clambered, slid, waded, and climbed up and down mountains for two and a half straight days with almost no sleep, dutifully gives Cantrell a Ziploc bag and slumps in his chair. His wife weeps behind him. A guy in Kelly's camp bangs on his thigh in celebration. The first thing Kelly wants to know is whether his running partner for the bulk of the race, Gary Robbins, has finished. Kelly and Robbins ran the first four laps together, but were required by Cantrell's rules to go in opposite directions on the fifth and final lap. Let's listen. <laughs> Gary. He's not here yet. Now, here you beat him. You beat him. Well, what, is he looking good? We didn't see him. We don't know. He had plenty of time. He had good time. Awesome. Kelly appears delirious. No one gives him any food or medical attention. Someone hands a Gatorade to the guy who was banging on Kelly's knee and too excitedly telling him he beat Robbins, which he doesn't give to Kelly for another three minutes. 
Meantime, Cantrell is counting Kelly's waterlogged pages. The crowd whoops when Cantrell announces 13, meaning all of the checkpoints are accounted for. <laughs> you are unbelievable. I had, 59, 32, right? I had like an hour and 40 left at Chimney Top, and I just straight passed out. Like, I had all my pages in an hour and 40 minutes left. And all of a sudden, like, I had no idea where I was. I was just wandering around the capstones, and I couldn't find the trail. And the whole way down, I was like, I was going to be that guy that had all my pages and just fell asleep. And if it didn't, the one for the rain and the cold, I might still be asleep. Kelly continues to ask about Robbins. He's clearly concerned. So no one knows where Gary is, he asks. Gary's back there somewhere, someone replies. Then Cantrell launches into a cheery story about when Kelly first wrote to him about running the race. The apparent lack of concern for both the guy who finished and the guy who's back there somewhere, alone, possibly lost or asleep or unconscious or worse, is utterly creepy. 30 minutes later, Robbins arrives. All right, I need to describe what happened there. Robbins starts talking as soon as he touches the yellow gate. He collapses on the pavement in a fetal position, walking poles at his side, his wife holding their toddler son, trying to comfort her husband while relaying his words to Cantrell. I got all my pages, dropped down the wrong side of the mountain in the fog. I had to swim a river. Does it count? You'll hear Cantrell's accented voice in the next clip. Here's all of his pages. I went the wrong way. I think it's not. That's just disturbing. I mean, an ultra runner, a physical marvel, is lying prostrate on the pavement, out of his mind, mumbling about his fucking pages. And instead of saying, we'll figure it out later, Gary, right now let's just get you some help. Cantrell is nattering about the rules. When Robbins says, it's okay if it's against the rules, I understand. Well, if you're not about to cry watching that and not concerned about this man's health, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry I messed it up, he mutters into the ground. It's heartbreaking. After sitting for a few minutes covered in a blanket, two people support Robbins while he takes a few steps over to Cantrell so that he can show Cantrell on the map what happened. Then someone asks, Did you get all your pages? Yeah, he, yeah, he would have gotten all the pages. He turned right on the last. Okay, he got all the pages. Turn. Did you make the time on it? No. By how much do you miss? Six. Then you have to come in on the right trail anyway. Still, it's a story for the ages. Cantrell says six seconds with what sure looks and sounds like a smile. Robbins took a wrong turn in the fog and cut off about two miles of the final stretch. He knew he had done that. That's what he was babbling about. His result wouldn't have counted. Cantrell later made that clear in a statement posted on Facebook. But in that moment after the race, and even later, did it really matter? A guy runs through the woods for 60 hours and six seconds, and you're concerned about a wrong turn and the rules and the pages he ripped from a bunch of paperbacks and stuffed in a plastic bag? Isn't that the antithesis of what the counterculture Barkley is supposed to be about? Look, I get why people attempt invented challenges like this one. To feed an obsession, to reward hard work, 
to see if it's possible to lose your mind while pushing your body to its outer limits or vice versa. And I love the idea of this race, offbeat and literally off the beaten path. But the race videos of Kelly and Robbins don't feel quirky or inspirational. They feel cold and dangerous and a little bit sick. On his blog a few days after the race, Robbins explained that in retrospect, when he lost his way in the fog, he should have turned back to the prescribed route. But in the moment, all he could think about was getting to the gate in under 60 hours. So he kept moving forward. I bushwhacked down the mountain at breakneck speed, and I found myself at a large river, Robbins wrote. The river was maybe 15 feet wide and absolutely raging from all the rain we were experiencing. I took one step off the riverbank and was already chest deep. I would never have made the decision to attempt to swim such waters under anything other than a highly sleep-deprived and stressed state of mind. Robbins doesn't say it outright, but he's got to know. He was lucky he didn't drown. He was lucky he didn't die. He was so determined to finish this borderline inhumane race crafted by one man to test or thwart other men and women, that in a state of exhaustion and delirium, he plunged into a raging river so that he could try to meet an arbitrary deadline. Despite that, in his blog post, Robbins actually apologizes to Cantrell for what he did in his brain-addled state. I put Laz and the race in a precarious situation, he wrote, and in hindsight, I'm glad I was six seconds over, so that we didn't have to discuss the validity of my finish. Robbins put Cantrell in a precarious situation? That is some Stockholm Syndrome shit right there. And it's indicative of the odd and slightly sadistic hold that Cantrell and his race have over extreme athletes willing to take the most extreme risks. Cantrell talks about how people are obsessed with comfort and therefore need discomfort to understand when they feel good. He's just laying out the challenge, giving people the opportunity to go deep inside themselves, as he told one interviewer. You reach the limit and find out that there's a little more, he told another. What's the limit, though? I mean, 15 people have finished the Barkley. What if Cantrell decides that the race isn't uncomfortable enough anymore? Will he up it to six or seven loops, lower the time to 50 hours? Or is the only limit the ultimate one? In the video, after Robbins recovers a bit, he and Kelly hug and are talking quietly when they are interrupted by the sound off-camera of a trumpet. Taps. That's what's played when a runner doesn't finish the Barkley Marathons. In the documentary, Cantrell says that it's highly unlikely anyone will die out there. He has no way of knowing that, of course. But he'd better hope he's right that playing taps remains a dumb, dark joke and nothing more. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. 
remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Hey, Slate Plus members, thank you for listening. Marcus Thompson and Shea Serrano are back, and we are going to talk about Marcus's new book, Golden, about Steph Curry. First thing I want to do, Marcus, is play a little clip from uh, Sunday's postgame at Oracle Arena where you asked a question of Steph Curry. Here we go. Marcus Thompson, Mercury News, author of... Uh, <laughs> Kevin, need a couple buckets. Man, he was supposed to finish it for me. Like author of, and then Steph was supposed to say, "He's such a hater." <laughs> <laughs> that was the timing was fucking perfect. Curry owned you there, Marcus. That was great. You know what? I'm fine with that. <laughs> you should be fine with that. I'm fine with that. Um, let's talk about some of the uh about 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 Steph and reporting this book. You've been covering the team for over a decade, right? Yes. Since 2004. Every time I say that, it sounds crazy. It makes you sound old. Um, Yeah, I am. Definitely. What? I mean, obviously Steph is Steph and someone was going to write a book about him and why not you? Who's been around there so much. What about his story made it compelling? Do you think makes Steph Curry book worthy? What makes him different from other NBA players? You know, I didn't think it was book worthy at first. I mean, I was going to do it because they wanted to pay me. But like once I got my check, I was like, okay, so what do we do here? Because there isn't much salaciousness, right, to Steph's story. And, you know, you almost feel like you kind of need that. But right. Steph is the anomaly in that he's existent in this world, this this like wild world as like the non-wild guy. And how did he get there? But as I as I kept writing, it just felt like, you know, how a lot of NBA players like they they feel like they corner the market on toughness. And, you know, I come from nothing. I pulled myself up. Uh, but really, when you like analyze their stories, especially the superstars, a lot of them been pampered since they were 16 years old. You know, and they do come from like poor neighborhoods and and bad families. But, you know, they be getting free shoes and told how great they mm-hmm. are forever. And Steph is kind of the opposite of that in, in many ways, like. His story is more gangster than him because he was like nine years old looking like he was a toddler trying to play hoop, you know, and that whole time, like all his life, he had to fight. And, you know, like since he was a middle school kid, nobody believed he was that good. And really, he was like a prodigy trapped in his little body. Mm -hmm. But nobody nobody believed him. Uh, And so even he gets to the NBA and they still are like, man, you ain't a point guard. So it's kind of interesting in that typical overcome adversity story but it's just you know he's got a superstar background well curry totally represents privilege but there was a piece on espn recently by tom farry about how most nba players today come from middle and upper middle class families rather than economically underprivileged stories the cliched story about the basketball player like even the ones who you think right who who walk around like you know like Look at me, I'm chiseled from this concrete of whatever neighborhood like they come from nice families, you know, which I don't, 
I don't think that's a bad thing no. at all, right? <laughs> it's it's a great thing, and it's great to show like that kind of you know progression. Uh, but that's not cool to be from <laughs> a middle class family, right? It's not like there's no swag in that saying, yeah, man. Like remember Eight Mile when he was like dissing uh, Papa Doc because he actually had two parents, right? He's <laughs> like, man, you got two parents. <laughs> And Clarence's parents have a real good marriage. Nobody want to, like, <laughs> that's not cool. So it's better to say, man, I came from nothing. Uh, but there is a change, especially with all these former players having kids going into the league. I was thinking about how people, uh, he mentioned that nobody was believing in Steph when he, when he got to the league. And I remember feeling that same way because I'm from San Antonio, so I'm a big Spurs fan, of course. And we, we played the Warriors before they got good. The year before they became really good, we played them in the playoffs. And it was like, oh, I'm not, like I'm not worried about this series at all. And and then Steph dropped like scary, uh, yeah, yeah, on the in the first game in San Antonio. And I was like, what the fuck is going on right now? And then ever since then, yeah, he's been on my radar. But, Do you remember that shot where like he was uh Tony Parker was on him and he was like crossing oh. left and right, kind of lost the ball. <laughs> When I saw yes. that, I was like, who is this dude? Yeah. <laughs> well, the who, the who is this dude is a big part of Curry's story, right? I mean, he's the son of an NBA player. It's not like he was unknown, but he went to a smaller Division I school, Davidson. He wasn't, uh-huh. he wasn't given much credence because of his size, even though his game was looked like it could be transcendent. I mean, the way he performed in the NCAAs that year got a lot of attention, but still nobody believed deeply that this was going to be a transformative NBA player. No, nobody I mean, did. Nobody, nobody, nobody no, no way. He, now, his mama like, did He's like 5'10", and his ankles are made of putty, and he wears leg braces. Like, that was the scouting report on, on Steph <laughs> until, uh, until he just started murdering people. Like, when Marcus mentioned that play when he did that to, to Tony Parker. Like, he just started doing that, felt like, every game. And after a while, you just couldn't ignore it anymore. And now he's just terrifying. He's absolutely terrifying. Well, Mar- Marcus, when, when that was happening, I mean, did Steph know that? I mean, what did your reporting, like, what did you find out in spending time with him away from the podium and away from the locker room about how he viewed how he would do in the NBA? Oh, Steph has always been, like, completely delusional, right? In his mind, he's always been a star. Like, he, he doesn't come out and say, I'm a star, but... If you talk to him about, man, Chris Paul is good. Like, what you going to do? It's like, oh, you know, we're going to go at each other. And it's like, especially at the time where, like, Chris Paul was owning him. Like, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go at him. And, you know, he just, you just had that sense, like, there was never any fear. Like, he kind of wanted the challenge. And just when you talk to him, he's like, of course I'm going to be back from my ankles. Of course I'm going to be an all-star. Like, it wasn't even in his mind that, that we weren't. So it was like everybody else had to catch up to how he thought about himself. It, it used to be, it used to be kind of delusional, like how, how much his confidence was. And you could see that in how he plays, like some of the shots he takes and the passes he tries. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't do that. Like any coach would yank you out the game, but he always <laughs> believes it's going to get there, which is crazy. Did he always believe that when you talked to him? I mean, did he tell you, this is what I always thought, even when he was a four foot 11 you know, seventh grader playing on a high school team. I mean, he always thought he could be in the NBA and play in the NBA. He never thought this. At least he never said it to me, right? He never, I don't think there was anybody 
in the Curry family who thought he would be a two-time MVP. Uh, the goal was to be like an all-star, right, and mm-hmm. established in the league. And Because when he came in, people were like, man, he, he can't play point at this level. He should just, you know what, he should be a six-man where he just come off the bench and shoot. So if you like look at his numbers, he didn't take that many threes his first three years because he was so bent on trying to prove that he could be a point guard. Mm-hmm. So he didn't even take threes. I just think that he thought, man, I could make it in the NBA. And when he got to the NBA, he thought, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like, I can play in this league. And then all of a sudden, magic happened. And I remember, like, remember, remember the, uh, what was the game, Portland? Like, I'm back. You know, yeah, I'm yeah, here. Yeah. When, he, when I'm walking off the court and, and he's, like, walking and he's walking right towards me, I was like, so is that your flu game? And he just gave me a look like he couldn't believe what was happening. He was like, this is crazy, huh? Like, it, like his whole face said, like, can you? Like, like it's all a shock to him. So I don't. Nobody saw this. Like, no, he didn't see this. You, if he did say that, he'd be lying. Hey, Marcus, do you think that the 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 sort of not full embrace of Curry by his peers is because it happened so quickly? Or, as you write in the book, is it about something else? You say it may take longevity to fully appreciate him, and that the unspoken sentiment is let's hold off on anointing Curry the goat. Um, but is there more to it? Is it about the privilege? Is it about his skin color? Is it about he's small? Is it about that he came out of, you know, he wasn't expected to be this good? I think generally it's like uh, the, the, over, the umbrella, right, is, man, he's not worthy of all this hype. But individually, like the people who just don't believe that, I think they find different reasons, right? And some of it is, I just don't believe this light-skinned dude from the suburbs who go to church is tough, right? I'm about to, I, I could just overwhelm him with my power. I think that's part of it. Like he has to get credibility. They just don't give it to him. Some six-foot-five dude walking the court, he got on like nice hoop shoes and he all swole. You all imagine like, oh, hey, okay, he could play. Seth ne- has never gotten that. It's always been, what is this dude doing on the court? And then if he makes a couple <laughs> shots, all right, I'm about to lock him up. I'm just going to be physical with him. And then he has to prove, you know, that that doesn't work. So that's just his story. And it's just going to take him a while because you got to think about it too, man. He took a lot of people's endorsements, a lot of people shine. Like if you were thinking, <laughs> man, Kobe getting old, you know, this what is it? a window right here. And then some dude in Under Armour just take over the game. Like, of course, people are going to be mad at that. Were there, were there a lot of NBA players, like, trying to get that Brita water filter endorsement money? Was that like that? <laughs> <laughs> they were lined up. I don't think it was Brita, though. It might have been, like, cognac, cognac filter. <laughs> <laughs> and, Marcus, one more question. Give me your one most surprising takeaway in the time that you spent with Steph Curry and, and reporting this book. To be to be honest, it's probably not that juicy, but like he, that dude is his mother's child. Uh, that that kind of blew me away, hmm. you know, because it's always been about Steph and Dale. It's always been his dad's an NBA player. His dad can shoot. He can shoot. Like I've been around him forever, and that's always the storyline. So I was expecting to do this heartwarming chapter about a father and a son, right, <laughs> and sell it to all dads and have it uh, at Target for Father's Day. But but it turned out to be like his mom, right? It it turned out to be like his mom is like the center of everything. Like the way he plays and like that kind of wiry, high energy, 
like athleticism, not super athletic, but he's really quick and feisty. Like that's how his mom played volleyball and like that. He's really silly and all that dancing he does and likes, you know, loves fun. Like that's his mom. His mom is that way. She's very, uh, she's very wild. Like she, she, she can have a good time. And then, of course, like all of his faith that kind of undergirds all of it, like that comes from his mom. So every time I'm like digging into him, it just all pointed back to his mother. And I, I really didn't expect that. I expected it to be Dale. The book is Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. The author is Marcus Thompson of the San Jose Mercury News and the Bay Area News Group. Everybody should check it out. Thank you, Marcus, for coming on the show. And thank you, Everybody should check it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Let's do it again. All right. Dude. All right. Got you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.